I'm just getting goosebumps listening to this. This is so beautiful. And on this day in 1981, Simon and Garfunkel reunite before a reported half million fans. There you go, in Central Park. Whatever the number, the concert was so successful the duo decided to embark on a year-long world tour. Uh, and the backdrop's very interesting. In the early 80s, Central Park was a no-go zone for locals, deemed extremely dangerous. So the city, lacking the financial resources to spend an estimated $3 million to restore the park, decided to approach Simon and Garfunkel to raise money. They had broken up 11 years before, so it was a big deal they came together again. But Paul Simon later said... The rehearsals, just miserable. Artie and I fought all the time. You can't tell it there, though, can you, uh, Amy? It's just such beautiful, beautiful music. And that concert, if you saw it, was something else. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were such an incredible pair with them together. It's a pity they fell out. The music was just beautiful. Did you see that concert, Mark? Yes, I did. I wasn't there, but it's a beautiful song. It's about a friend's cancer, isn't it? I believe mm. so. Yeah, hello, darkness, yeah. my old friend. I'll come to visit you. And it, it, um, you're right, I do get, same as you, well, I get goosebumps when I listen to that. It's one of the most, I saw them play when they came back out here. Did um, you together? Yeah, they played in, um, they came to, they played in Auckland in uh, oh, about five, six, seven, no, 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 ten years ago probably. Yeah. But and sadly, Art Garfunkel's voice was not as, um, okay. you know, mm. as good as it had been. He had a beautiful voice yeah absolutely and, and paul simon's just a genius 25 to 5 the panel rnz national lovely to be with you we have amy carter and mark sainsbury on monday afternoon's show in a completely different news not related at, uh, to the queen at all uh, and dedicated to mark sainsbury <laughs> data released by centric has revealed that in the past three years the number of Kiwis with mortgages over $1 million has doubled. This time in 2019, just over 50,000 borrowers had mortgages over a million bucks. Now that number has risen to 103,000, or about 8.5% of all borrowers. With interest rates and cost of living on the rise, this has some concern about how big borrowers will cope. With us is Centrix Managing Director Keith McLaughlin. Kia ora, Keith. I just saw that number and I thought, had to get you on a million dollar mortgage. And I didn't, wouldn't have realised that there are over 100,000 people with that sort of mortgage in Aotearoa. Yes, it's certainly climbed up over the last two to three years. And to be fair, that's not totally surprising with very low interest right. rates and very expensive houses. So that in itself is not really the problem. The problem is what happens if something happens. Well, let's talk about that before that. Give us some background. What led to so many people taking out such large mortgages over the past few years? Well, it does go back to the fact that money has been relatively cheap, certainly compared with historical interest rates. Um, House prices were moving very quickly upwards, and there was the well-publicised fear of missing out. So people were borrowing heavily to get into the property market. Um, That trend has now slowed or stopped and we're getting back to business as usual which does give some cause for concern how things can change within the space of a year keith is all i'm thinking yes i mean we were 
I mean, the, the interest rates were extraordinarily low. And, uh, you know, those of us who are a little older will remember first mortgage rates an awful lot higher than 3 4%. Um, so, yes, people were borrowing um, because putting money in the bank was, was not producing a return, so they wanted to put it into property, and that in itself fueled the property market. Yeah. Amy Carter, a million-dollar-plus mortgage. You'd be wanting to um, uh, count every penny at this juncture? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's scary how much... Um how much people can borrow, and it's just when those when circumstances change, isn't it? And whether people can afford things like income protection to 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 soften some of the blow of that occurs. And uh, yeah, I remember my husband and I being really worried about how much money the bank would lend us to buy a home, and just under, couldn't understand why anyone would take on that level of debt. Was that your personal yeah. experience? Yeah, it was. Um, we both have had you know reasonably good incomes, and they lent us way more money to buy a house um, than we would ever have borrowed. And we, we were wow. yeah, quite shocked. Yeah. Well, okay. And was that in the last couple of years or so? Or? No, no, that was that was quite a while ago. So it would have been, yeah, 15 years ago when we bought our first home. And, um, yeah, we, uh, we we generally had that conversation. And it's it's interesting. Recently we, we applied for a loan, for a, for a business loan for one of our businesses. And, um, you know, banks were hesitant to loan against the business but were then offering us in this next sentence, again, silly money for a house. So it just feels as though banks are very focused on that residential lending space and um, that's probably compounded some of this problem in many ways. Interesting comments, Keith. Yes, they are. Look, I think generally New Zealand... Uh, borrowers are very responsible. If you look at the arrears rate on, on mortgages at less than 1%, um, New Zealanders in normal times are very, very responsible. The concern is if circumstances change, you know, health or marriage or fallen asset values, that's really where the unexpected pressure would come on. Mark? Yeah, look, I, while you guys were talking, I was busy getting onto a mortgage calculator trying to work out if you had a, a million-dollar mortgage, what's it actually costing you? And and this thing was this was just a basic one. I was going and it was talking about it your depends pay, on your terms. Yeah, but you're for say it's a thirty year mortgage at four point six seven. You're paying eight hundred and eighty thousand dollars in interest over the period. Yeah, what, of that. So what, what would it be? That would be about oh, let's have a let's have um, about two thousand six two two yeah, and, oh, two and a half grand. Cheapest. Yeah, it'd be two yeah, and a half grand a fortnight. You're right on to it. You are a two thousand four hundred eighteen dollars a fortnight there for thirty go. years. Yeah. I mean, Keith, I remember come my, on, that's extraordinary. Who, who, uh, who, who takes, who, who does take out a mortgage loan? Who would go to a bank and um, uh, cross off on the fine print? Yep, a million dollars plus, just fine. Yeah, uh, there are reasons. I mean, you know, you borrow to fund business, you borrow to, to buy a second property or an investment property. Uh, so, you know, there are business reasons that are associated around that. Um, but yes, I mean, a small movement in interest rate can have a dramatic impact on, on your ability to service it. And some of the mortgages that are out there at the moment are you know, two five-year mortgages, which haven't yet had the impact oh. of the increase in interest rate. Oh. So that's still to come down the, down the line. Sorry, Amy, you were, uh, Amy, you were saying something. I think it's also interesting. I mean, maybe some of our generation's been influenced by. I remember my parents and the mortgage, the interest rates that they were paying back when they had their first, you know, first mortgage, and how horrific that was. And I remember the pressure it put on my family at the time, and, and the conversations around the dinner table. Maybe that's influenced some some people's thinking.
Keith, now you can answer this for me because someone was trying to tell me when we we're talking about interest rates just recently that if you've got, say, like a, you know, a table mortgage, you go to your bank and you get one and then you change it, you've basically been paying interest all up front. You're throwing a, quite a bit of money away. Is that right? Is it, is, is it an inefficient way of borrowing to begin with? Well, I mean, the, the interest is the cost of having the use of the money. So whether you change the form of loan or whether you continue to pay it off, if you if you owe a million dollars, you pay interest, and that's for the use of the money over the time that you have it. So, look, I don't think you're significantly disadvantaged in changing the type of lending you have. I mean, obviously, you know, if you have a, any difficulty in repaying any debt or, or lending, then you should immediately approach the lender or the bank and speak to them first because they will generally work with you. Very good to have you on the programme, Keith Kyoto. That's Keith McLaughlin, uh, Centrix Managing Director. That story about uh, the number of Kiwis with mortgages over $1 million has doubled in the past three years. If, if, if that's you, um, why don't you give us, drop, us, drop us a line, drop us an email? Um, on how you're finding it and uh, why you decided to um, get a mortgage of that size and significance, uh, the panel at rnz.co.nz. 18 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. Very nice to be with you. We've had quite a response to this uh, next story. For example, here's one. A 22-year-old daughter has had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome since age 15, diagnosed as depression initially, corrected last year. The biggest problem was lack of support from educational establishments, also GPs who recommended expensive practitioners who claimed they cured it. It is a disability. Anyway, a petition to reclassify chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalitis as a disability is expected to be read at Parliament tomorrow. Up to 45,000 New Zealanders are thought to suffer from this debilitating disease, and many sufferers require significant help, both socially and financially. Should chronic fatigue syndrome be classified as a disability. We across uh, we go to an expert very very shortly on this. But firstly, we have Simone on the line. Kia ora, Simone. Simone, Kia ora, brother. Wallace yeah. Panel. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being with us, Simone. Um, or tell us about your uh, struggle, I guess, with uh, CFS. Mm, um, well, I've had it since I was fourteen, and it was a bit of a process uh, going through doctors and. Um, but fortunately, my mum had it before me, um, and it was easier to understand what was going on. And um, I'm now 21, um, and still in a dark room, um, dealing with it every day. Really, um, yeah, it's it's not something I would want anyone else to have. And you mentioned things like, um, what is it, Simone? Is it a lot of uh, muscle pain, joint pain, um, general sensitivity, neurological issues? Yes. Um, it has such a wide range and oh. severity for each individual. Um, personally, I deal with a lot of fatigue, and um, if I overdo it, I get a lot of sore muscles, and um, I have brain issues, so I forget things really easily. Um but mostly I'm just in bed all day long um, Goodness. and it's hard socially <laughs> and uh, for everything. So it's a day-by-day thing for you, Simone? 
Definitely, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not easy to deal with, but there's beauty with it as well. Um, yeah. Sorry, my brain is not very <laughs> no. good right now, sorry. <laughs> I appreciate you being... Just finally, Simone, is there... Hmm, is there light at the end of the tunnel for you? Uh, what What are your uh, medical practitioners saying, your GPs? Well, um, there's a lot more research that's happening um, into ME uh, now that there's a lot more long COVID sufferers um, mm-hmm. because it's a post-viral disease, ME, CFS, um, and so there's a lot more money being thrown in it, at it, which is great, um, and just hopefully there's going to be a cure on the way the sooner the better well thank you so much for listening to the panel and thanks um, for picking up the phone and having a having a chat with us thank you i love listening to the panel each afternoon <laughs> <laughs> kia ora simone thanks um thanks uh, for that now with us and listen to that is kate waterworth lecturer at the school of clinical sciences at aut kia ora kate Very well. I guess Simone really encapsulates that, um, well, I guess you can just say it out, um, that day-by-day absolute challenge that many uh, sufferers of ME face. Yeah, I think um, a number of people with ME experience that, um, yeah, really challenging um, symptoms around fatigue and pain and that aren't well read or recognised by our health services or our practitioners. So on top of that set of symptoms, they often might feel invisible or misunderstood and um, have challenges navigating our health system. Can you just explain to a little more to our listeners just what it is? What it is? Um, so my area is actually around disability studies, um, not so much the around health conditions. Yep. Um, but it is, a, a, um, a, I guess, people with ME would experience a set of symptoms for mm. a, a long period of time um, that don't fit well into um, our health system and the way it operates, really, and so often have long delays in achieving a diagnosis and, and then barriers to achieving support that works for them. Yes, and that's been really the common uh, scenario. We've had quite a lot of emails uh, and texts come through, you know, going to uh, to get support, or disability support, or wind support, or, or, you know, and then turned away, you are fit for work, that type of thing. Many variations, and I'll come to our panellists very, very shortly. But the first thing I thought is um, it would be a surprise to many that is already not classified as a disability, Kate. Mm, well, there's lots of complications really about what is how disability is understood and how it's oh. understood in our different services. So uh, the Ministry of Social Development would um, operate off a slightly different uh, definition than our health services, which use a slightly definition from our education services. Um, when I read the petition um, that the um, ME Society has, has submitted, um, I would suggest that what they're really looking for is better support services. Um, And so in some situations, a a, um, class being understood as being a disabling condition would mean that you have access to household management supports or personal care supports. Um, So I think my interpretation is that really it's just these access to supports is um, what's useful for people. Amy Carter, you've come across this uh, in in your life. You might have friends or colleagues who have suffered from it. 
Yeah, I had a, a childhood friend whose mother had it, and it's just debilitating. Mm. And it just seems to me horrific that it's not got this recognition already. And even when you Google on the, the government's own website, you know, the, the long-term conditions definition seems to be pretty clear. I would have thought it would have fit in there. So it's it's very sad that it seems to be slipping through the gaps. I think there's a, um, it's interesting to look at the history of different how different health conditions or disabling conditions are understood, um, and this has been been I guess understood more recently over the last twenty or, or thirty years or so, um, and initially was probably interpreted as um, people were really had experienced being dismissed really, um, told that um, their symptoms were sort of in their minds rather than a um, sort of biomedical kind of issue. Um, and I guess those attitudes of our health kind of system have really meant that um, there's been limited research, limited visibility um, of people and their experiences and uh, into the condition itself and how to support people living with that condition. Yeah, and that's coming through. Melissa saying, my son could not go to school most of the time. Doctors said they didn't know what it was. It was so upsetting and frustrating. Mark, are you there, Mark? There was a thing around in the 80s, Wallace, called Tapanui flu. Now, is this mm. is this the same? Do we do we do, do we know, Kate, of this is, is that the same as Tapanui flu or what was what was called Tapanui flu? The, um, the same thing um, as ME or CFS. I believe it was. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so I think it's why I don't have a strong understanding of the sort of physiology of, of ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. But so my understanding is that it is this post an ex, post viral kind of experience. And so there was this um yeah, I believe that earlier on mm. in the nineteen eighties there was a set of people around Tapa Nui that Yeah, there's um, a cluster that there that, and they could not yeah. work out what it was. What it was from. And it's yeah, and so the, there would be a lag between that experience mm. and then the recognition that it was a post viral situation yeah and Kate did you say you suspected what they're really asking for is help I mean they're not getting yes. enough help dealing with the condition as, as we see it yes exactly so not enough um, day-to-day support um, I think you know attending health practitioners um, not maybe being listened to or heard or validated or um, being offered the, the system and services that, that work for them and does making it a chronic disability does that trigger some sort of aid package uh, within our health system, there's, there's um, some, a set of conditions that are often considered personal health conditions, and then another, um, then there's something that's a definition of disability, which is a reduction in function for more than six months that affects activities right. of daily life, really. And so, when you um, get accepted to meet that condition, that that definition, then you might have access to um, equipment that might support you in your home or mobility equipment. Um, it might also allow access to needs assessment services, which would then potentially um, provide household management kind of support. Oh, very good, Kate. Let's yeah. see how that position goes tomorrow. Uh, for now, though, Kiara, thank you very much. That's Kate Waterworth, their lecturer at the School of Clinical Sciences. Uh, a petition. Uh, expected to be read at Parliament tomorrow to reclassify CFS as a disability. A lot of feedback on that. I've had it uh, for 30 years. I go from bedridden to be able to get around on a scooter so far. No help or cure. Self-monitoring. Worst symptom is post-viral malaise. I did a bit much and was in bed for months. Eight to five, the panel, uh, NZ National. Very nice to have your company today. And finally, people know... 
as we all do, people have been queuing to pay respects to the Queen. Those lines, they've been extraordinary. People patiently queuing for up to 11 hours, even way more, and lines that have stretched eight or more kilometres. Even the likes of David Beckham spending hours upon hours on the line to pay his respects. And Jen is from the UK, from RAF. She had been queuing up also, and she joins us live from, uh, from England. Jen, welcome. Oh, hello, Wallace, um, and good morning to you, and good morning to all your listeners from the UK. Oh, thank you so much, Jen. Why did you decide to join this long queue? Quite a commitment. Give us the insight. Um, well, you know, it, I was compelled, to be honest with you, Wallace, Um I'm 46 years old. The Queen has been the cornerstone of my life and from all of our lives. And she just gave so much. She, you know, she was so wonderful, so giving. Um, and I'd served in the Royal Air Force. And I'd grown up with my grandparents, you know, adoring her. And I just felt compelled that I had to go and say my goodbyes and pay my respects to her. You did a long post about it, and you say that at the start of the three-mile queue, you met your queue family. Quite extraordinary. Tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> yes. Um, at the beginning, we, you know, we, you turn up at this queue. You don't really know what you're, what, what to expect. You know, we we started at ten o'clock at night here, um, and and we met. You know, we were stood with a group of a group of people and we just kind of got chatting why are you here what made you come and then over the course of the we were we queued for over 12 hours in the end we said no we're going to stick together and we had people with us who would come on their own and we said no we're going to stick together and we kind of kept each other going and we become we kept we became we went from strangers to friends and I said, you know, I believe that the Queen, in, even in this, you know, even in her very sad passing, brought people together to be friends and to, you know, share this feeling together. She gave us such, a, you know, a lovely journey to see her. And after 12 hours of queuing, it's 10 a.m. on a Friday, you're in. Tell us about that moment. Oh, <laughs> I struggled to even think about it without crying. I'm, I could cry now. It was, it was like, um, it was first of all the first time you saw her her coffin, and it, it looked so small in that vast room. It took my breath away. I, I, I could, I could feel myself, you know, taking a breath of, oh my goodness, it was as if you were stepping into an oil painting it was there was a sense in that room it was as if it was it was sacred and it was holy and it was a feeling that was beyond anything i'd ever felt and i realized afterwards it was a pure feeling of grief and love it was an, a pure outpouring of grief and love it was Mark. just unbelievable Mark, do you now have a better sense <laughs> of what the Queen 
means to some people. I know that the Queen means, and, and Jen, well done, good on you, but I, I can appreciate how much the Queen means to her. Um, but the situation is different and we don't all think the same. My thing is the proportionality of it, um, Wallace. Not that we should ignore it completely, but I just thought, you know, for us here, it was too over the top. I can quite understand Jen and the connection that she has and what a wonderful experience it was for you, Jen. Thank you, Mark. It was a wonderful experience. Stay there, Jen. We've got Amy as well. Mm. I'm interested in the friendships you've made. It was obviously a real bonding moment in the queue. So, you know, have you got new pen pals or are you going to meet for coffee or, you know, what's the next step? Is there new relationships that have come out of this? When we all came out from seeing the Queen, we all cried and hugged together and we never knew each other 12 hours before. Um, and we exchanged numbers. We set up a WhatsApp group. <laughs> and we're still messaging now with photos and, you know, little funny stories we've remembered. And we've we've said, right, we are going to, when our king is coronated, we will meet in London again. And we will, you know, we will celebrate in London together. Jen, could you imagine doing the same thing for 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 Charles, mm. for his funeral? Uh, I, I, I could, yes. I, I I do I do support and love the royal family. I think the Queen, however, you know, for seventy years served our country. However, I know that Charles. I can see that Charles already is going to do such. Play such an amazing part well, in Jen, our country. Th- thank you for being with us here on the panel. That's us for today. See you tomorrow.